Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Hello, all, and welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. I'm Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont, and today I'm joined by Barbara McKenna, who is president of Longfellow Investment Management in Boston, a $17-plus billion fixed-income multi-asset and equity business that she has run since 2005. Barbara's had a distinguished career for two significant Boston-based firms predominantly, State Street Research and Standish Aaron Wood, but she has run Longfellow for the last 18 years. Longfellow has about 130 clients spread across a range of institutional segments, corporate, public, Taft-Hartley, Endowment, and Foundation. And I've known her for some time and found her to be a very thoughtful and industrious leader of this business. Barbara, thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me here. I feel very privileged to be a part of this series. So Barbara, let's start with a recap of the last 18 years because I have a feeling that the Longfellow of today is quite different than the one you entered in 2005. What would you describe as the primary changes? How would you describe the evolution of the company? Sure. So you're correct. I, I arrived in uh, 2005. I was employee number eight, and we had about $750 million in assets under management. We really had been founded with two strategies in 1986, which was our merger arbitrage and short duration fixed income. And by the time I arrived, they had just started an intermediate duration fixed income strategy uh, to meet one of the client needs. And I had spent most of my career managing a range of fixed income strategies, both on the client side and the institutional management side really from money markets out to long duration. And I was fortunate enough to bring several clients with me when I joined Longfellow. And so those clients and portfolios immediately started expanding our offerings. And then in 2006, one of our clients wanted to transition to core fixed income and was willing to allow us to start the track record with them. And that really was a trigger point for us. And while it was a struggle at first to get assets, I think the success we had in 2008 kind of put us on the map, one of the few managers that had outperformed the benchmark. But the core and then core plus, which added high yield, has grown to be about a third of our assets over time. And being involved in those strategies going out beyond 30 years and across all different qualities and sectors really allowed us to expand our strategies so that we could take a piece of anything that we were already doing and carve that out for a client need. And at the same time, we were expanding our merger ARB and absolute return offerings to capture just a broader range of event-driven and credit opportunities to offset some of the challenges that were occurring in the merger arbitrage business, uh, largely regulatory, but a lot, of, a lot of issues there, including the rate environment. And then fast forward to 2020, and we were approached by a client who'd been working with an equity team whose parent was shutting them down. And we really weren't looking to expand into the traditional equity space. But after meeting the team and looking at their process and performance. We were just so impressed and uh, 
So while they did have other offers and opportunities, fortunately, they selected to make Lim their home. And they've just been a great addition from a culture, investment approach, and, and leadership perspective. So that has taught us to keep our minds open to unexpected opportunities. We never fully know what the future is going to hold, but, but I think our focus is to continue to build on those core competencies, pursue the strategies where we believe we really have expertise and the opportunity to deliver for our clients. We're not looking to be everything to everybody. And we really focus and require a cultural and philosophical fit for the strategies that we offer. So currently, you know, what does the future uh, hold? I, I think we're focused on building out the capacity we have with our existing strategies and for partners and maybe additional sub-advisory relationships in order to deliver our offerings in alternative formats and platforms such as commingled funds and um, perhaps even an ETF. We've talked about those opportunities. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. And you and I have talked um, at length about potential other opportunities, partnerships, um, bold-ons, smaller acquisitions. And as you said earlier, it's very hard to get the right fit to find someone that really values being part of you and isn't just kind of bringing their business to kind of bolt on in some sort of aggregation play where they share some services, but they're never really part of Longfellow. Absolutely. I totally agree. The, the success in this business comes when there's really that consistency of culture and philosophy and mission. Let's talk a little bit about how the business has grown to 17 plus billion across these wide range of strategies. I mean, sales and marketing is a challenge for many uh, boutiques and employee-owned firms in the business. What is your philosophy along the sales and marketing lines? How are you doing it now? And you know, just given the challenges of relatively few flows and searches compared to other times in, in yours and my professional life, challenges of just people changing asset allocation strategies or moving money into fixed income buckets or uh, where you manage money, just being able to continue to build organic growth X the market. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. You know, I get asked that a lot and I will say that some of it is being fortunate to be in the right place at the right time or have the, the opportunities but I think the first aspect of success in this business is to maintain the existing clients you have. And we've been very fortunate to have a very low client turnover. In fact, our first two clients that have been with the firm for over 35 years are still clients. So I think that that speaks to both performance and service because you need both and, and client needs change over time and being able to have that flexibility to change. So overall, we have very solid relationships and, and they do continue to evolve. But as you said, when I got here, we had 750 million in assets. And, you know, we have had a consistency of growth over the past few years, including 50% over the last five years. And I would say that growth has been fueled by a combination of factors, including having the offerings or the flexibility to alter an offering to fit the time and the need, you know, that flexibility and prioritizing client needs and 
Also across our strategies, we have sort of a fundamental philosophy of downside protection across all of our strategies. And since I've been here, we've experienced many of volatile periods. So um, I think having that kind of downside protection has been very important to clients and especially clients that aren't easily able to go out and raise funds if something happens, endowments, healthcare systems, universities, uh, as well as pension plans. Well, part of what I take from what you're telling me and from what I know of you is that Longfellow uh, investment capabilities and strategies are not sold. You don't have a sales culture. Those strategies are bought by discerning clients. You are an investment-centric culture, and you are an investment-centric person. I agree. We are not driven by distribution. We are driven by client success. And I will also say that I hope that our clients, and this is the feedback that we get, and our consultants, because we do work with them to deliver solutions, that there are a lot of great firms out there. But I think being individuals that are approachable, that want to work in solving problems instead of a sales, uh, a firm, I think, well thought of from character and integrity. I think the, that character, overall character of the team is also something that has led to our success. We have a number of clients who we've had for many years and we see additional portfolios, we see additional strategies that they help fund. I truly believe that as an active manager, the greatest success comes when we're viewed as a partner and a solution provider. And that, of course, includes seeking to deliver consistent, above average, risk-adjusted, relative, or absolute returns. But it really means focusing on listening to the needs of clients, having the ability to customize solutions. You know, I mentioned earlier, carving out bits of strategies, maybe credit only or something else. We also combine strategies to target a particular risk return. So we offer multi-strat solutions. We've been involved with ESG and mission-related objectives almost since our start. Um, and certainly more formally in ESG since uh, 2012. Mm-hmm. We've developed liability solutions, designed custom equity solutions that have negative correlation with the US dollar. And I think being able to meet unexpected liquidity or other types of challenges that, that clients face is really something that they cite as why they continue to expand our existing relationships. Well, I think really what you've gotten at is that you are trying to solve client challenges and needs. You do not have a arsenal of strategies that you need to sell or get to scale or to just continually move assets into into product and to sell product. This is about being a partner to your clients, which typically is reserved for much bigger firms. You know, this kind of of talk is much more what you would hear from a a Vanguard or a BlackRock or a Carlisle or or other people in the public or private markets that are trying to offer a range of of, uh, solutions, not a much more focused boutique provider. So I I do think that's a point of differentiation. And, you know, I think it attracts and retains a different type of employee as well, because you're not doing the same thing. You, you get involved with different types of clients, different types of portfolios and strategies. And, and sometimes 
you know, it might have people scratching their head, but I think it has allowed the team to have greater growth in their professional career and the things that they're involved in. And it keeps them engaged in a different way. And I think for me and my history, you know, those are things that were important to me. Well, let's continue that thought. So on the notion of how you lead the firm and the culture that you referred to earlier that you have instilled and that you are constantly working on, what would you say are some of the key aspects of your leadership and governance philosophy? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I've been here now since 2005, but previously I've worked for a range of organizations. And other than the first company I worked for, every single one has gone through a major transaction that really resulted in the disbandment of the teams that I worked with and I'm very disruptive. But there were good things and maybe not so good things. And what I really tried to do when I got here is think about what were the things that led to success and what were the risks or failures, because I never wanted to go through that again. I never wanted our clients to go through something like that. So I am a firm believer that owners who are really aligned with client interests rather than hired guns or mercenaries, just provide that culture of long-term commitment to success. So independence and sustainability are drivers to how we operate. We want to have an entrepreneurial culture. We've touched on that a little bit because I, I really think that empowers individuals and it really aligns them to client success again. So we changed our structure when I arrived to allow for broader employee ownership. Mm-hmm. And over the time that I have been here, approximately one third or more of the employees have direct ownership and the vast majority have some type of direct or indirect equity exposure. I think that's an important differentiation because often the 100% employee owned firm is really just held by one or a few people and it's not broadly held. And as you know, that's really important to Rosemont who uh, is completely focused on majority employee-owned businesses and being able to help them carry on that legacy of majority employee ownership over generations and transitions. And I think it's been a, a very key element to our being able to attract and retain mm. the talent we have. You know, I don't have the cash compensation to always compete with some of the largest of our brethren, but I think that deferred compensation that builds up through equity ownership, but know that you have a a say in that growth and see it, you know, and and can feel that in the bottom line and so on is is really important. So we think that's that's critical. I think another aspect to the organization, and I think this is a critical risk for every business But it's also very critical to investing is avoidance of groupthink. You know, I think challenging one another and how we vet ideas, find opportunities, and reduce the possibility of mistakes is is really important. And we need everyone to have a voice. So we really prioritize, you know, the individual speaking up and and give them that platform Mm -hmm. and how important diversity is. And And we really look at diversity across a wide range of attributes, experience, gender, ethnicity, education, age, and so on. And operating on a team structure in both our management, as well as how we operate, 
you know, for our clients and, and invest is, is really important to us. As you said, I am sort of an investor. I would love to spend all my time working on investments and, and not firm stuff, but it's a, it's a split. But I think this has been an industry that has a poor reputation for embracing that diversity. It also can be intimidating. So as a woman majority owned firm, I think we're uniquely positioned, you know, to be a role model for change. And so not only just how we operate, but also, you know, we work in the communities and with colleges to support a wide range of candidates for them to get exposure to join this industry, whether it's at some point in the future here or elsewhere. That's really important to the culture that this industry has. Now, I'm happy to hear that. And I knew that a little bit about you and Longfellow. And you know, it's important to us. We have backed a number of woman and diverse owned businesses. I have twin daughters. I'm constantly telling them, ask questions. You know, constructive dialogue and constantly wanting to know is a very good trait. And I think something you just touched on a second ago, which is in the more crass parlance of what you said, you don't have a culture of suck up where people yeah. are just kind of <laughs> sucking up to you or trying to tell you what you want to hear. I also don't think that you have the culture of Bridgewater, which is perhaps more combative in its challenges as opposed to more collegial. And I think that that has stood you well. And that's a big reason people want to work at Longfellow. I think collaboration is, is very important. You know, I don't want people to agree with me. I used to say to people, if you all agree, why should I pay anyone else's salary? You know, I, I'll use this analogy. I think of ideas as balloons. And when we all bring many pins to the table and try to pop the balloons, those that still float, they're not guaranteed success, but they're more likely to succeed than if we only tried to pop it with one pin. And so that's really what we're trying to do is, is bring diverse perspectives, work together, look at people that have more expertise in an area, challenge them to make them defend positions, but also to educate ourselves. Well, this is consistent with how I know you. And I think it, again, speaks to defining the culture of Longfellow. Well, Barbara, I would be remiss if we didn't finish with some sense of where you stand on markets rates, the Fed. This is something that you are embroiled in every day. So put your macroeconomic hat on and give our listeners a sense of kind of where you think we are today. Sure. You know, the pandemic put the world in a challenging and unfamiliar place. And certainly the central bankers, policymakers, businesses and investors, including us, are still working through it. This is a scenario that none of us have experience and don't have a lot of history to look at for what's gone on. And while I do live within this economic culture, as I said earlier, our strategies really emphasize bottom-up security selection. So our process really puts fundamentals and valuations as the key to our portfolio construction. You know, we kind of believe that macro-focused strategies really lead to greater volatility due to the elevation of event risk, because I don't think anyone saw a pandemic, and the lower accuracy of forecasting. So they inform our decision-making, but they don't necessarily drive it. We actually place the greatest focus on the influence of macro events rather than trying to predict them. So what we focus on is where are the risks and where is the compensation for those risks? 
And one of the things I try to equate this to is, you know, when we're all learning to drive and the tendency is to look just over the edge of the car, right? not further down the road. And I think too often we can be influenced by what's right at the end of the car or what's been in the rearview mirror. And I think that led to some of the problems we've seen with issues in the banking sector or thinking that we're going to repeat 2008. So if we think about where we finished 2021, markets were really expensive. Mm -hmm. Things were roaring. You know, we became defensive. It was the worst year on record for bonds. You know, equity markets generally were down 20%. Now, the good news is for us that now bonds actually have a great yield and they actually operate as a hedge once again for risk because that doesn't happen when they're at zero. And our equity income, which we still think is in this environment good, you know, it was positive. And so we see a lot of interest for that. So how do we go from here? You know, the Fed, a lot of people are pricing in cuts right away. We think the Fed could be done. They might have a little left to do, but largely what has needed to be done is behind us. But Fed and monetary policy, like currency moves, take a long time to move through the economy. Mm -hmm. And this time, it's probably going to take significantly longer to move through the economy, but it will ultimately have that effect. Why is that? Because unlike previous periods, there was a huge amount of fixed rate debt, one of the highest portions of fixed rate mortgages on consumer balance sheets in decades. Companies with particularly those with access to the public markets had termed out debt. So there's not near term maturities and they fixed those coupons. So a recent study that I was reading indicated that for the first year of Fed hikes, we got about 50% of the impact on what we would look at as traditional measures than would be expected for the amount of Fed hiking we got. That's kind of good news for consumers and companies, but bad news for the Fed. So it means they're going to have to continue to be more vigilant. It will take longer for this to go through the economy. And that increases the risks of breaks and volatility. So being prepared for volatility is something that we think are are really will serve people well. I couldn't agree with you more there. Let me finish with this. Do you think that 5% short-term money, though, prolongs inertia? in terms of institutional movement in, and searches and in wanting to basically move up the risk spectrum in other products when they can make 5% plus in relatively short-term paper? I think for some, it, it definitely does. And I, you know, I think back to 2006, early 2007, I was out pounding the sand for people to extend out. And they're like, but, you know, the curve is inverted and we're going to extend and give up yield. And, you know, our thinking was we were going to have one of the worst recessions of our lifetime. And as negative as we were, we were probably too optimistic. But at the point that you get near the end of the Fed, the next move ultimately is a cut. So try to lock in those longer term uh, yields and, and rates is important for two elements. And I think sometimes we forget about this. We, it's very easy to just think about yield, but the total return that you can get from a longer security coming down is so multiplied. You know, owning a 30-year that drops 
1% gives you about a 13% return before you add in the income. And so the combination of having yield plus that, that longer maturity really magnifies the return. So, and we do see this, we see certainly pension and other liability driven type of, of clients. In fact, we would say that in the long credit in particular, as a result of insurers and pensions, long credit is, is somewhat expensive for the risks yeah. that we see over the coming year or two. We like credit more intermediate and shorter, but rates we like more intermediate and longer, right? To get 5%, but you know, 13, 15, 20, those opportunities are likely to exist at some point. And that's pretty good too. Well, we could continue down that rabbit hole, but I think one thing is clear and that is that you have a pretty broad toolkit to basically meet multiple interests and demand, certainly along the kind of short and longer term fixed income spectrum and in the equity world and absolute return world. So I think you're going to have a continue to have a busy year in front of you. And I wish Longfellow well. I'm very glad you were able to join me today, Barbara, and look forward to seeing you in Boston before too long. Well, we always look forward to our visits with you. And I just want to thank you, not just for this opportunity to speak, but for the insights that you have provided over the the years and introductions and so on, but broadly for this series of podcasts that are just so informative and and interesting. And, you know, it's it's very easy to stay in your own little shell and move along. And these are, are a great series to sort of think differently. So I really appreciate what you do here. Well, thank you. And Brad and I are enjoying doing them. You know, we're alternating them now every other month and we're having fun. And we talk to a lot of uh, different and interesting leaders in the business intentionally, and you are clearly one. So thank you. Loved having you as my guest and uh, look forward to seeing you. Thank you very much. 